Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is James Meredith from London, England, and you're listening to my favourite podcast. It's the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and thank you to James Meredith there. Who, of whom we are the favourite podcast, lovely James. Uh, he was a backer in last year's Kickstarter. In fact, he backed at private podcast level. So he received a private tennis podcast with the three of us, the contents of which you'll never know about. Uh, and uh, he's also backed us this year. He's going to be a guest uh, editor. Uh, yeah. which is sure to carry bags of fun. It's going very well, our Kickstarter, which is um, the understatement of the century. Where I don't know how to do this bit without sounding fantastically smug and gloaty because um, we are just completely overwhelmed. I know we say this every year, but we've sort of redefined overwhelmed in terms of our reaction this year. Our whole kind of reaction to to the Kickstarter, which launched less than 48 hours ago as, as we record this uh, at 2.40pm on Thursday, has been the equivalent to the way Matt was looking at the screen on day <laughs> two of the Australian Open last year when there were more matches than have ever been played in the history of tennis in one day. And he was <laughs> he was so excited, but he couldn't cope with it all and his poor little face was just, just all too much. Um, and that's exa- exactly the state that we've all been in for the past um, 46 hours and 40 minutes. Because as we come to you, we are 95% funded uh for 2021 and there's still 49 days of the kickstarter to go (laughs) during which we'll still be trying to persuade you to to back us and take up the remaining um categories and rewards that we have available i think we've got about 25 um predictions slots still available we've got private podcast slots available uh, some guest editorships, lots and lots of shout outs or name dissections as they're now being referred to uh, and intros as well. Uh, so if you'd like to have your name in our intro like lovely James Meredith today, then uh, you can still do all of that. All of our mascot slots have gone, David, all sort of 400 of them that I engineered. I mean, that was hilarious. On uh, Tuesday night when we launched this thing, by the time we went to bed, 39 uh, out of the 40 weekly mascots had gone. And then just just as I'm about to put my, my pyjamas and my nightcap on, um, <laughs> really, the 40th really one hope went. that's a metaphor. Yeah, it is. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, they've all gone. The people love pets and tennis. I mean, I don't know why we bother with the tennis on this tennis podcast anymore. It's clear that the people, the people demand pets. Um, I quite like tennis. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Um, but honestly, I, I'm i struggling for the words, really, for for what this support means to us. I mean, obviously, primarily, it means that we'll be able to carry on doing this and pouring all the energy and love that we have into it this year and, and even more. But even on top of that, it just um, it's emotionally quite quite overwhelming the support that we've received um not just financially but the messages that that have accompanied it um they all Mm. mean something to us so thank you so much um if you'd like to chip in or get one of the um rewards categories then please do every every penny that goes into that kickstarter even if it's beyond the target um will be used wisely i promise you that it'll be used to make this podcast as good as it can possibly be so thank you uh and let's relive more of this horrible year awesome <laughs> people people will be unbacking us <laughs> yeah <laughs> now with, that with you've given us your money tale. let's remind you what an awful year it's been uh when we left you last time we had just um relived the adria tour what a time that was uh, and briefly touched upon the ultimate tennis showdown, which was not ultimate, not tennis, and certainly not a showdown. Um, so we pick up now with tennis relived and tennis relived for the Olympics, which should have been in Tokyo 2020. Um, this wasn't in our first slate of planned relived shows. And I said, oh, we should do an Olympics Olympics relived show. And then suddenly we did six Olympic relived shows in the end, or maybe five, yeah. but one of them was two hours long. So, so basically it was six shows. Um, I think it was seven. I mean, it, yes, great. I've just counted Olympics and I've, I've got to, I think we did two in one show and then we did... Six separate shows. Yeah, wow. so seven, seven altogether. Seven. I've just counted it on my fingers. I mean, that is terrible. My, my son is currently doing his times tables, and he's. Just, I mean, he, the speed with which he can do them, and here I am counting to eight on my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we basically did uh, a show Paralympics, didn't we? In the end, no, a show for yes. Did we do a show Paralympics? Yeah. yeah it's just the first one where we covered two Olympics, and it was sort of fourteen hours long. I don't know how many of you listening actually made it to the end of that uh, first Olympics relive show, but it was very good. I en- oh, well, I enjoyed yeah. it very much. This is the go and relive it. Well, this is the portion uh, of the show that I'm going to find it hard not to be uh, not to be biased about because obviously um, the Olympics lights a fire inside me, um, and I particularly I particularly enjoyed sort of. <laughs> An aspect of it which I wasn't quite expecting, which was the getting to hear about the various levels of joy at winning medals and how they don't correspond in any way with the colour of that medal, necessarily. Um, yeah, that that was one of the most interesting sort of thought experiments. Well, not, well, not thought experiments. I mean, actual experiments. People have people have lived them, and we we spoke to them, but. That was a fascinating element of it, wasn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of had some insight ahead of time into what to expect from certain people, but others, I knew nothing of their stories, or I just knew that they'd won a medal, or I just knew that they'd missed out. I mean, it was James Blake who just missed out, wasn't it? And and we we had him on, and um, and I kind of knew what his general feelings were, but so many of the other stories I really didn't know about until we actually got to speak to them, and that was a real joy to me especially having seen them all on tv from afar and and always wondered Mm. everyone's got their own olympic story i think an olympic connection which we discovered along the way and i think that's why we ended up reflecting on tennis's own place in the olympics and that is such a difficult question to actually answer because it is kind of individual for so many people but what we did find is that everyone who had certainly won gold cherished that medal as pretty much dearly as anything that they've won in the sport and there were also as we were here especially one person who won uh, bronze and will cherish that more than probably anything in their life ever so there were just these discrepancies in people's in people's own connection to the games and that was Yeah, that was kind of the most enlightening part of it, I think. Mm. Well, let's hear from from the man that you referred to there, Leander Pays, and also from from Marty Fish. Marty Fish got a a silver medal, Leander Pays a a bronze, and we'll also hear first from Gigi Fernandez, who um, who actually won two gold medals. And yeah, that that difference of experience and joy levels, I think. This compilation of clips illustrates that perfectly. Gigi Fernandez talking first about being, as she views it, the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal, obviously something that uh, Monica Puig achieved when she won in Rio in 2016 and was lauded as the first Puerto Rican to win gold. But Gigi Fernandez believes that that title really belongs to her. Well, I was very proud that Monica won a gold medal. I, I was very happy that a Puerto Rican stood on the podium and the national athlete, the Laborinqueña, played. But there's no question that I'm the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. I am Puerto Rican. I'm as Puerto Rican as they come. It's a very controversial subject, you know. But, I mean, I, I was born and raised there. I developed my tennis there. I didn't leave there until I went to college. I just wanted for the U.S. So I mean, so so the, I think the correct way to say it is like Monica Puig is the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal representing Puerto Rico, and I'm the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. Was there any sort of emotional conflict for you when you were on the podium, not hearing the the Puerto Rican Absolutely. anthem? Absolutely. Mm. I mean, I you know, it's like I have I have both passions because all Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Um, you know, I had a I had a Puerto Rican flag that I pulled out, so I had the Puerto Rican flag and the American flag. Um, you know, and I think it's fairly unique in this. Well, you guys have some of that because you guys have, you know, Irish and Scottish. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and you all, yeah. So you can kind of understand that kind of, uh, confusion of what you are. Um, and you can be more than one thing. Correct. Just, just not yeah. at the Olympics. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I still feel like I'm a Puerto Rican representing the United States. I always felt that, you know, it's, the world is a melting pot especially more so now, right? Uh, absolutely. I um, I read a lot about sort of your childhood and so on, what you had to, to sacrifice and, and risk to become a tennis player. Did did winning gold at, at the Olympics, did it did that feel like a kind of a validation of, of all of that and all of those decisions? Yeah. 
Um, you know, it's funny because like when I was growing up, it, it was not a goal of mine because it was not an option. So I think winning Grand Slams was more of a validation of like that it kind of all paid off. And and also this this decision to represent the United States has continued to haunt me over the last 25 years. It's still very controversial in, in Puerto Rico and it just doesn't seem to end, especially after Monica won the gold medal. Um, I mean, the, it, it was really hard like, a couple of years ago after she won the gold medal because everybody was like, well, if she did it, you could have done it. And I was like, well, but I didn't play singles. So, uh, you know, I it just, it's like the story that never ends, you know, and now, and then I'm sure I'll come back again when she goes to defend and That's it's, really tough. yeah, it's very, very complicated. Mm. Um, and people still talk about it. I mean, if I go on social media, sometimes I go through pages of being on social media and not being on social media because people get so, they're so, uh, vindictive you know and so it's like harassment on social media like i mean i'll just write a post like a random post about my kids or whatever and then somebody will comment yeah but monica was the first quarter you can win a gold medal <laughs> like completely unrelated this is three years later and it's like oh my god people just will not let it go i mean i do appreciate the fact that that i am an olympic two-time olympic gold medalist and um and i think in general people respect that and and know that it was a good accomplishment, especially to defend, because not all the people have defended in Absolutely. tennis. So, so do you think I'm the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, a, good, good answer. You, good answer. Well, you're a, you're a Puerto Rican, and you uh, you won a gold medal. So, thank you. Those are the facts, right. right? Where's the balance between happiness at at winning an Olympic medal and disappointment? at it not being the gold um it's uh there it's tough to find um to be honest um it, you know in the moment i sort of felt like okay you know i'm really up really bummed right now but in time it'll be really amazing to bring this medal back and sort of share it with my family and friends and um, I never really, uh, that never really happened. Um, I never really felt like, okay, um, let me show this thing off. Um, and, uh, let me show my second place off and it just didn't feel right. Um, I sort of even felt like third, you know, like bronze medal, at least you win that match. Um, Fernando Gonzalez beat Taylor Dent in that, uh, third and fourth playoff and, Fernando won his match to win his medal. I lost my match to get my medal. So it felt, it felt odd. Um, the other thing too, is that people maybe not understand is that, um, they give you a, an Olympic ring, regardless of if you're an Olympic athlete, um, and you can, you know, you can put a, a one diamond in there for an extra two hundred dollars or whatever. But you, you know, you, they they put your sport and they put your name on it. And if you're lucky enough to win a medal, they'll put your what you won on there, and they send it to you after the fact, obviously. And um, uh, so I got my med or my ring in the mail, and it said gold medalist on it. And I uh, initially was like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. I got a gold medal ring, you know, and I put it on. I'll never forget this. I put it on one time. I went to the supermarket just to get, you know, something and some groceries for the house and had it on. And I remember checking out and I looked down at it and I'm like, 
what are you doing wearing this thing? Like you are not a gold medalist. Why are you wearing this? And I never put it on again. I actually don't know where it is um, anymore. Do you remember how you felt on the podium? I do. Yeah, I do. I was, um, the pictures say it all. Cause I've, I've seen the pictures before a few times. Um, uh, uh, sort of devastated is, is an understatement. Um, uh, they threw up the, the song right after we are the champions, the queen, you know, um, you know, for Nicholas and, um, and, uh, I'll never forget that. It's one of my least favorite songs now. And I used to like the song, um, look, it was some of my greatest memories of my life on the tennis court and in turn, some of my worst memories on the tennis court, all in one event. It's the only time I've skipped Wimbledon to go and play and prepare for Atlanta. When most people are surprised that I won a medal in Atlanta, my team was not because they know how much hard work and effort I had silently focused into performing in singles in Atlanta. The funny part is when I actually got to Atlanta and after the opening ceremony on the Saturday before the, the tournament started and the draw came out, I was drawn to play Pete Sampras. <laughs> And the whole uh, Indian contingent and my team uh, looked at me and my captain, actually, Jaydeep Mukherjee at the time, he tapped me on the back when we all saw the draw and he said, tough luck, son, you're going to have to prepare one more time. And I smiled at him as I gently do when people give me a no. I've had no's my whole life, man. I've had a hundred doctors tell me I would never be an athlete because I have a heart disease as a young boy. So my whole life, mate, I've had people tell me no, 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 no. I actually love it. I love it when someone tells me no. So when I saw that draw and my captain kind of instigated me by tapping me on the back, I just felt that there was some magic there. And Sampras didn't play that Olympics for some personal reasons of clothing branding or something like that. And Richie Renneberg came in. I beat Richie Renneberg because he defaulted in the third set because he could not handle the altitude conditions. And after I won that first round, something told me that the hard work was going to pay off. Just look at the karmic journey there, right? You're drawn to play Pete Sampras. You take four years to work your your tail off to prepare for this. Pete Sampras pulls out of the draw. Richie Renneberg comes in. You work hard. Six, seven, seven, six, two, one upper break. He retires. Then you beat Nicolas Pereira, who was number one in the world in the juniors in 1989, the year before I was. Then you beat in the third round, Thomas Enquist, who was number one in the world in the juniors in 1991, the year after I was. Then you come up against Renzo Furlan and beat him on pure serve and volley tennis, 6275. And then you play the mighty Andre Agassi, one of my best friends on tour. And both of us have an uncanny history with the Olympics because his father was a boxer uh, for, for Iran, if I'm not mistaken, back then. And my dad was an Olympic champion in, in field hockey for, in 72 in Munich. And we played each other and I had two set points against him in the semis. And uh, he uh, uh, hit a passing shot at 5-6-15-40 in the first set at my face. And uh, I had to hit the, the volley in an awkward position. My right wrist was in a vulnerable position and he ruptured tendons in my wrist. And uh, the, the, the Dougie Spreen, the, the tournament uh, physiotherapist, came on. And he said, Lee, you've got ruptured tendons in your wrist. You need to stop. You're going to jeopardize the rest of your career. And I basically turned to him in the heat of the moment, as, as crazy as we athletes are, and said to him, strap me up and let me back out. This is my chance to win an Olympic medal. 
Well, I didn't get the chance that afternoon because Agassi saved the, the second uh, set point and won the tiebreak in the first set, seven six, and then beat me. I think six three in the second. I was playing with that uh, ruptured uh, wrist tendons, and then I had to go into a hard cast for twenty four hours because there was a break between the semifinals and the bronze medal match. And with that ruptured wrist, I had to come out and play one of my best friends from Brazil, Fernando Melengeni. After losing the first set, I just found it was just mind over matter, you know. That day, I just found a a, a mental space somewhere deep inside me, and uh, when that last ball flew over my head, beyond the baseline, I had my hands up in the air, and most people thought it was in jubilation, but it was just in relief of literally twenty hard years of a lot of effort, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of single-minded focus to eventually emulate my father and win a medal for 1.3 billion Indians. That's a really extraordinary tale of, as you said, this this sense that there was something in the air and there was a sense mm. of destiny and a journey behind it. Where does it rank in your in your career, that bronze medal at the 96 Olympics? I, noticed, I noticed that it's your background picture on your Twitter account. Number one, you say. Number one, because uh, my second uh, uh, rank of anything that's happened in my career is the fact that my parents conceived me in 72 in Munich. And that was during the four days that the Munich Olympics were shut down because the Palestinian-Israeli uh, troubles. Um, I guess my parents had nothing else better to do. <laughs> so I was born on June 17th, 1973. So I was, I was an Olympic baby. So what better than to go and win an Olympic medal, right? It just justifies the reason you're born. There is never a bad time to relive the conversation where Matt discovers when and where Leander Pays was conceived. <laughs> Thank goodness that wasn't his Twitter background. <laughs> you know, when I, <laughs> when I hear that back, I think, what a stupid question, asking him where that ranks. Obviously, it's number one. Yeah, but you need to get the quote, don't you? You need to get him saying it. Mm-hmm. And boy, did you get the quote. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one after another quote, yeah. Leander Pays. I mean, he is an incredible storyteller. Um, and actually, those three stories back to back, I'd forgotten them. Um, Matt cut those clips for us today, and we, we've just heard them for the first time since we recorded those shows a number of months ago. And, and it shows the power of them because they, they got me smiling, they got me feeling sad for Gigi Fernandez when she's saying to you, do you think I'm the first Puerto Rican mm. to win a gold medalist? And I thought, you know, that's, that's really something that she's, she's just wrestling with this all these years on. Mm. I've thought about that a lot because why should she care what I think? Why should why should she care whether, whether I think she's, you know, I, I've never met her. You know, we had one, it was a really great Zoom conversation, fantastic interview. But, it, you know, it clearly matters to her that people think of her in, in the right way as uh, a Puerto Rican that won a, a gold medal proudly for her country and the fact that she receives this online abuse and everything it's you know very understandably not something she's able to to detach herself from and that makes me really sad um as did pr- pretty much the whole conversation with Marty Fish i mean you'd certainly take Leander Pays's bronze over Marty Fish's silver wouldn't you 
And uh, for anybody that still hasn't seen those pictures of Marty Fish on the podium, I mean, first of all, gird your loins and and then take a look uh, because they, as he said himself, they tell the whole story of how he he was feeling. Um, And I get it, you know, as much as I I covet an Olympic medal, um, hopelessly, I I can 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 imagine I can sympathize with that being the feeling particularly in tennis of of being on the podium in in second place. Um mm. and he illustrated it so well with that story of always thinking he'd want to show off his medal and then actually when it comes to it feeling like oh you're just going around saying here's something I came second at. That dynamic is not unique to tennis. There are other sports which have a kind of uh, third, fourth place playoff for a medal, but it's it's a very interesting thing because Mardi Fish also said in that interview, which we didn't play in that clip, but he said he was so relieved to have won his semi final match because it meant it guaranteed him a medal. So he thought he was going to be happy, whatever happened, because he was terrified of finishing fourth. He said he'd rather have lost in the first round than finish fourth. So both those matches over the weekend where you've got the gold medal playoff and the bronze medal playoff, those are such tough matches to lose because you're either so close to a gold medal or you've finished without a medal and you might have, you might as well have gone out in the first round if you look at it just in those terms. So I think we found that that weekend in tennis is a minefield of emotions for players as they try and grapple mm. with which medal they're going to end up with and it, and your your outlook on whether you're having a good games or whether you're going to end up feeling positive after the games can change so so suddenly just based on the one match and just to round off um the Olympics relived portion of this show. Since since doing those re- Olympics relived shows so much of them stayed with me and really got me thinking. I, I've, um, whilst being in the company of Tim Hemman and Greg Rosetsky, as I have been a fair bit over the past few weeks and months, I've I've quizzed them a bit about the Olympics. I've pressed them on whether they have any have any regrets, and I don't want to don't want to put words in their mouth because you know it's a sort of off the record, and b didn't g- get their definitive views on it. But I certainly got the impression that were it now they would absolutely make different choices about playing the Olympics and where they would rank it in terms of commitment. And I do get the feeling the Sydney Olympics, for both of them, actually, they feel like is the one that got away. I think because of its positioning in the calendar, unusually it was after the US Open, whereas it would usually be prior to the US Open. But because Sydney's in the Southern Hemisphere, they needed to play it later. They needed to stage it later in the year. You know, I was sort of jokingly teasing them both on why on earth they didn't play doubles together at that at that Olympics. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't think either of them are lying awake at night thinking why didn't I commit to those Olympics. But you know, Greg didn't even play, um, and I think Tim did play, but but lost early. Um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know. It's, I think both those two are. They're good examples because I think they're players that completely maximised. I don't think they have regrets about their careers that keep them up at night. But I managed to elicit just a little hint of wistfulness from them when asking them about the Olympics. So, yeah. Mm. And and doesn't that 
show the arc of the Olympics mm. that we that we kind of discovered. I think there are so few players now who need to be convinced about playing the Olympics. And I think the, one of the last ones was Dominic Team. And actually, since we've done those Olympic relived shows, he has confirmed he's going to be playing in the Olympics next year if it happens. I mean, he's, he's asked to borrow Catherine's box sets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely listened no, he to Olympics relived and caught the bug. That's definitely what happened. Um, yeah, he was the last bastion, wasn't he, of Olympics denial. Mm. And he's fallen, uh, which is brilliant. So fingers, toes, everything crossed that we do get the Ch- Tokyo Olympics in 2021. Um, obviously, our, our our relived tennis relived for 2020, at least. It will be returning for 2021. Ended um, with our two pre-US Open shows, um, focusing on the, the lives and stories of Arthur Ashe and, and Althea Gibson. Um, and boy, are those two shows kind of difficult to show, sum up in, uh, in, in, in a sort of pithy, pithy way. Somebody help me. Well, they're, they're the ones that I think probably mean the most to me of all the near 150 that we've done this year. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of a lot of the, the, the shows that we've done for various reasons over the course of the year, and I've enjoyed them all immensely. Uh, I didn't enjoy every aspect of putting together those two shows because I found some of the material quite upsetting and, and difficult to to just stomach that the, the worlds that particularly Althea Gibson was was part of and and the struggles that she had and and on also Arthur Ashe as well you know I, I but at the same time they they felt more important than anything else that we've done really and and um they just they educated me all, all the way through I knew bits and bobs but I didn't know half or even a fraction of the things that we ended up discovering and and all the stories that that contributors in those shows told us people like leslie allen who who i knew very little about before speak before you spoke to her for that show i mean i i still think about things she says and i haven't listened to the show for a couple of a few good few months you know but i want to go back and listen to it they're 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 the highlights of the year for me Mm. that leslie allen interview was probably the best interview i've i've ever done and none of that is to do with me um there was one line from it that i mean so much of it has stuck with me, but one line keeps, or one moment in it keeps playing on my mind, which is when she was talking about draw fixing. She she certainly didn't talk about tour level or Grand Slam level or anything anything like that. When she was talking about it in the past, she was talking about you know lower level tournaments and, and junior tournaments and that sort of thing. Um, but it happening anywhere, frankly, you know, I like to think of myself as pretty progressive and liberal and, and woke you know I'm very aware of my my woke privilege um I, you know I'm not kidding myself I don't have a lot to lot to learn but I felt so sheltered and naive when I asked that question about draw fixing and heard her response you know of course of course it happened and she didn't she didn't want to overstep and say I know that it still happens now because you know she couldn't provide evidence of that, but she suspected it still happens now, and that blew my mind. Kind of, 
And the fact that it blew my mind is an indication of, yeah, of my shelteredness and, and privilege. Um, yeah, to, to think that we live in a world where people likely are still fixing drawers in certain corners of it to ensure that what black players are allowed to enter are are minimised in the in the later rounds is is so horrifying and so eye opening. That whole Leslie Allen interview has stuck with me, and I think the way she brought those historical stories into the present day and really reflected on their relevance now was was the thing and you know these aren't stories of the past They're, these are these are ongoing issues that we need to engage with and learn from and be better at and I think it it sort of led into the summer that we had with Naomi Osaka and Coco Goff doing what they did and it just felt like those were the shows where you know we we like to see the funny side of tennis and and have a laugh about the sport but those were very serious shows and they were ones where i thought we really owed it to the listeners and to those stories to get them right and to really research them and you know that was rewarding for us as well um and we learned a lot and you know i just i just hope we we did do those stories and people justice really mm. By that point, of course, when we were recording those shows, tennis had returned. I think for the for the sort of five, six months that tennis was away, we'd all sort of pictured this glorious celebratory moment of tennis's return where it would be everything that we've missed all piled into one moment. Enormous crowds, jubilation, biggest players in the world. Um, it was in Palermo. Um, I'm not saying Palermo <laughs> isn't really, really nice and that's not a good tournament, but it was quite a low-level WTA event with a an OK field and no crowds. And it was, you know, it was a shuddering moment of being dropped into the cold water of new reality. Yeah. I think the other thing is that so much of the talk during the lockdown period was about tennis being more united than ever and the return to tennis was this really disjointed kind of shuddery slightly low-key affair and I understand why that was tennis has very difficult challenges in terms of putting on these events during a pandemic but it, it was a reminder that as much as there was talk of merger and unity during the lockdown there's still kind of quite a long way to go to actually reach that and um, yeah it was quite a it's quite a sobering reminder of the current state of tennis and also the current state of the world and how tennis fits into it. And yeah, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't the utopian, idealistic, big celebration that we were all hoping That's for. That's still coming, Matt. It's still coming but, sometime. Mm. But it, it was where we discovered Fiona Farrow, Matt. <laughs> well, I was aware of Fiona Farrow, right. David. It's where I discovered Fiona Farrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, realised how good she was, but yeah, I mean, you're right. It was it, it was a small event. I mean, they did a good job to put it on, and I think they might have had a few spectators. They, yeah, I mean, they was, did have a sprinkling. It, it was yeah. very quiet, wasn't it? It was very low key, and as you say, just 
you build it up you build it up and 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 they did the best that they could but yes it was um it was kind of fitting really mm. with the rest mm. of the year yeah and the theme of 2020 is you know making the most and being grateful for for what you've got here we are doing exactly that back in august it does feel properly like real tennis now because this is the first time we've reviewed a tennis tournament and previewed another one with pre-tournament press conferences going on everywhere that we've been able to listen across to and and chat amongst ourselves about people and look at draws i mean actually looking at draws is is suddenly such a thrill it feels so so exotic do it one of my lockdown uh tasks was to organize my phone apps into really helpful folders uh and i completely forgot which folder i put my atp wta scores app in it took me quite a long time to hunt around to find that mine seemed to shut itself down given that it hadn't been used for five months i had to reload it onto my phone <laughs> just a bit of rust mm. it was glorious to see tournaments pop up in it though wasn't it oh yeah that's such a defining feature of tennis happening the atp wta app being full um i've kind of forgotten how to preview tennis the um because the, <laughs> great stay tuned folks <laughs> because the wta always send out prior to every tournament they send out you know match notes really helpful stuff and stats and it kind of all feels quite irrelevant at the moment because you know it doesn't really matter who's won the most titles this year already there's, the, yeah. like, there's no such thing as form at the moment and it's all it's all really unknown. Like, what what are the factors going to be with how players perform? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Fiona Ferro is going to be like the new sort of de facto world number one. Yeah, suddenly she feels like the greatest player of all time <laughs> to me because she's 6-2-3 all against the net conservate. And I, and I did find myself looking up Fiona Ferro before this podcast to work out what she'd done before it, see if there was any sign of this having, you know, coming about six months ago. <laughs> Matt, th- Matt thinks so. I mean, I've gone through her exhibition results. She's unbeaten. No, you have She's unbeaten in exhibition tennis during the lockdown. She won 10 matches. What exhibition tennis has she been she playing? She won 10 matches arranged by the FFT. Yeah, she played and won them all, and she's carried this form into Palermo. I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting carried away with, you know, I'm, well, I'm maybe, sort of grasping I mean, for form. Well, exactly. So maybe we should be looking at the players who have played a lot of exhibition yeah. tennis in this period. You know, for people that are shortly going to be having to make predictions... Um, maybe that's something to a life raft to cling to. Well, we have already made predictions, and they've gone incredibly. Mm, but they became irrelevant. They became irrelevant very, very quickly. It is going to be interesting, though, isn't it, to chart the the few players that have played a lot of matches over the last. And there's, actually, there are quite a few players because if you think of all the exhibitions that have gone around on all around the world and. Some of them have been publicised, some of them have been televised, some of them we've talked about. Others have kind of gone by without really being noticed. But the, the, a lot of players have played a lot of tennis and then some have hardly played any at all. And it just will be interesting to see whether that has any impact at all. Yeah, and in terms of the tennis that's upcoming next week, uh, uh, we've got two events on the WTA Tour. We've got the Clay Court event in Prague, and then we've got this brand new event uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, which is the first WTA event in the United States since last year's US Open. So yeah, there's a real smattering, a real mixture in both those draws of players it feels like we've seen a lot of and heard a lot from 
during this lockdown period and players that it feels like kind of disappeared off the face of the planet and you sort of vaguely forgot they existed. Yes, it's a little bit like picking up a book that you were reading nine months ago and you're having to sort of re-familiarise yourself with the plot and the characters. Who's this again? What do they do? Except the difference is a book doesn't change when you pick it up from nine months. Everything's the same. I feel like this you know, the five-month break we've had will be having an impact on results. Um, so it's just it's just really difficult to tell. And I feel like no no results at all are going to really be that surprising. I think if, if the top players do well, you can put that down to, oh, they're the better players, of course they're going to do well. If they don't do so well, oh, it's this is a new situation, of course we're going to get upsets. There is nothing that you we would consider an upset well, I think, in the current climate. I think there was, like, there are still... Yes, relative upsets, but I don't know. Just nothing is going to be as surprising as it would have been in normal mm. circumstances. I think. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a good. It's a good point. I mean, I mean, yes, yeah. yes, it, I will it, be surprised if Bernardo Pera beats Serena Williams in round one, <laughs> but I wouldn't be as surprised as I would have been if the season had been carrying on as normal, for example. She almost did, Matt. She got a set off Serena Williams in round one. The first set, yeah. I believe. What, yeah. Were you surprised by Venus Williams beating Victoria Azarenka the way she did in round one of, of Lexington? I, I was more surprised by the fact that Victoria Azarenka came back from that and became mm. the force that she did or any force. I, I saw that match and I thought Victoria Azarenka looks done. Yeah. And Venus Williams looks like the one who's 10 years younger. It was such a stark, jarring match, that. And then the way things turned after it was was a real surprise to me. Yeah, I mean, the surprise in that match was Venus Williams emerging with a new serve, wasn't it? And as David says, coming out of lockdown, looking younger and fresher and vibrant. She was glowing that whole week. Mm. Um, And yeah, then what what followed was actually Azarenka was the one to turn it around. yeah, gosh. Do you know something else that was a surprise to David during that period? He's he's doing Go his on. thinking face. Jennifer Brady. <laughs> yeah, uh, at that point I was still in my doubting <laughs> phase, wasn't I? Middling American, <laughs> uh, uh, middling American on a good run of form in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought at the time. <laughs> Poor David. That was said in the uh, in the safe zone of the tennis <laughs> podcast. What hasn't it group? already been outed though? Yes, it has. Yeah, I think okay. so. What was formerly known as a sanctuary of the uh, of the WhatsApp group is now out mm. on the pod. Uh, but no, I mean she she completely won me over when we got to the U.S. Open because and she and look she was brilliant in Lexington. Don't don't make make it look like I. I didn't think she was good there. I just thought it was probably a one-off. I couldn't imagine that being repeatable at that level. Mm. I think the thing about Brady is that she'd actually had a really good start to the year. She had so many top 10 wins clustered in January and February. But I think it's reflected in what we're talking about in that clip we've just heard. I remember feeling so unsure about whether the whole of tennis would be completely different given that there was no crowds no match practice i genuinely didn't know whether the 
best players would still have the best results. And that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say now, because I think a few months removed, one of the big takeaways is that how unchanged the sport has been. The players who are the best players are still the best players. And what we did see is so many players who started the year strongly carrying that on. And Jennifer Brady was kind of the epitome of that. She actually got even better because she spent... Well, she spent lockdown, didn't she, in in Germany with her with mm. her new coach, and yeah, she was she was one of the obviously big stories of the last few months. But the kind of seeds of her development were actually planted much earlier on the, on in the year, and she was she was a case of how the tour, even though it had this big gap, did actually carry on with many of the players still doing well. Mm. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. The ATP Tour made its return at the Western and Southern open which obviously would have been Cincinnati but not in Cincinnati um which is obviously a combined event um let's all take a moment to relive the the weird baby um from the from the signage (laughs) who did the baby belong to what was the name of the brand it was some insurance company wasn't it yeah apparently it's really iconic Uh, in America but uh, to us lot it it looked like a it's a poster from a horror film. Yeah, it looked like something that was there to just troll the players while they were going about their business. <laughs> yeah, it felt like the sort of icing uh, on a, a very weird cake. Um, so you, the the combined return happens uh, at not Cincinnati, which of course was taking place at the uh, the Billie Jean King National 
tennis centre. Um, what happens there? We have we have Andy Murray beating Francis Tiafo and Alexander Zverev back to back. That felt like quite a big moment. I remember just loving seeing how up for that Zverev match Andy Murray was, and we know now that he's, you know, on the basis of his quotes last week, that is a very prominent result in his mind. He's obviously taking significant optimism from that match alone. Um, we had a resurgent uh, Milos Raonic. We had uh, a resurgent Victoria Azarenka, as David's just discussed. And we had Naomi Osaka, um, who, amidst all of this, tennis has returned, everything, the pandemic has become an incredible and outspoken advocate for social justice, social change, and for the Black Lives Matter movement. And of course, she reaches the semi-final um, and releases a statement to say she's not going to play her semi-final match. And that leads to the tours and the tournament backing her in that decision and announcing a pretty unprecedented pause in play, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was the month of Naomi Osaka, really, wasn't it? She was... I think she's the person of the year in tennis when when you consider everything she she did in that month um yeah I just I just remember having this this feeling of her moving tennis in a new direction in that month it just felt so significant the way she was combining all her on-court results with all her activism and they were they were separate pursuits, but, but they were also connected. She was very aware that the more she won, the more she'd be heard. And, you know, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but the US Open when she, you know, she said that line about having the seven masks and hoping that people would see the seven masks, that, that kind of symbolised the attitude she had, I think. Um, and, yeah, it was a day when at the Western Southern Open, it was a day where tennis, I think, did the right thing. And I think the tours were looking to do something and Osaka provided the catalyst for it. And for her to do that in an individual sport when she didn't have support of teammates or know what the reaction would be was, was an incredible, incredible gesture. Mm. And, uh, but potentially provided fuel for the formation of the PTPA. We understand that that decision of the tours and the tournaments to back Naomi Osaka with that pause in play was one of the catalysts. Obviously, the, the formation of the Tennis Players Union had been widely discussed before now, but certainly one of the catalysts for it happening when and where it did. I think there were other circumstances that led to it happening, a kind of captive audience situation with that bubble, the lack of presence of Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, who were both not playing that swing, uh, and are both have both in the past been advocates against a, a breakaway union, um, but it happened, and the photo happened, <laughs> and um, yeah, still waiting for details of of what the PTPA means and what it what it will do, as confirmed by John Millman that we spoke to spoke to last week. But um, yeah, is that one of the iconic images of the year that? picture of them all in masks where you can't actually tell who's joined the PTPA because most of their faces are obscured. 
I don't know. I spent way too long trying to figure out who all those players were. <laughs> it was a moment. It was a uh, moment, uh, for sure. One of many. Uh, it's not, I mean, you know, uh, I, I would want to see a lot more to it than that in order to, to look back on it with any degree of significance, to be quite honest. But, you know, we'll see. Um, but it, I suppose it it did feel somewhat symptomatic of the weirdness of the year. Uh, wasn't something that if you'd have told me at the start of the year that there'd be sixty blokes on a on a <laughs> on an outside tennis court wearing masks for a photo, all standing apart from each other. Imagine if somebody had told you the that. creepy baby in the background, <laughs> <laughs> and the and the U.S. Open logo, even though the U.S. Open had been part of the joint statement denouncing it, it was it was all weird. So that happened. Victoria Azarenka won the Western and Southern Open title with Naomi Osaka uh, pulling out ahead of the final with a, a hamstring injury, a hamstring niggle. Um, so sort of questions swirling around about her fitness to play the US Open. And Novak Djokovic um, came from behind to beat Milos Raonic uh, in the final of the Western and Southern Open. So go, uh, going into US Open, Djokovic nailed on men's favourite. And in the women's, it's kind of a bit more uncertain probably you'd have said Osaka the women's favorite but um obviously the the concerns over or the certain the uncertainty over her fitness there was there are there were and are still portions of the tennis fraternity that that viewed it as it's still Serena's to lose um and Serena played really well and uh, she had a great tournament and she contributed to one of the one of the best tennis days in my memory certainly probably the best single tennis day this year obviously there are fewer fewer candidates to choose from this year but i think that women's semi-finals day is a day that stands up pandemic or no pandemic mm. yeah i'd say it was one of the best semi-finals days that we've had probably ever really uh, i mean and and i think the context of it given that it was in this virtually deserted stadium almost added to it because you have to to make you feel like that when you come off commentary with an empty stadium makes it mean that you've played even better that the tennis is even better the drama is even better the the matches are even closer the the Brady and Osaka performances I mean I just don't think they could have played better really in their match. Um, Azarenka and Serena Williams, I think, played brilliantly at different times in the, in their match. There were bigger swings back and forth, um, but it was but the drama was incredible. But the sheer level of Brady and, and Osaka just was breathtaking to me. Mm. And it all happened on the day they were celebrating the original nine. And Billie Jean King, I believe, was in the stadium and I think said, this is... This is the epitome of what we dreamed of. And it, it was it was the most uplifting day of the year, the the probably the best tennis of the year. In fact, not probably, definitely. Um yeah, and, and as you said, it was a night where Serena played well and didn't win. And that kind of rocks your foundations and really makes you think about where the where the sport is at at the moment. And it yeah, it just felt like a really defining night from that reason mm. as well. That was probably the most uplifting tennis moment of the year. I'd say the m- most uplifting 
story moment of the year was Naomi Osaka walking out onto court for that final, wearing her seventh mask and eventually lifting lifting the title as much as I was a huge fan of the Victoria Azarenka story and her reaching the final. It, anything but an Osaka victory in that match sort of looking back feels feels wrong. It felt like that moment needed to happen and sort of had to happen. I don't believe in destiny or anything, but it is one of the sorts of moments that could could make a believer out of you. And of course the the moment in her victory speech or interview where she was asked what message she was trying to send with the masks and she instantly replies, Well what was the message you got? She's She's just summed it all up. She just keeps summing it all up um, and just being this incredibly powerful and yet unassuming figurehead for an incredibly important movement. And I think has, you know, with some assistance from others, Coco Goff most notably, but has completely put to bed any of the arguments about politics and sport not mixing. I mean, just... Just shush with that now. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just over that argument. It's completely over. Mm. I think, I think my iconic image of the year is Naomi Osaka lying on the court after she'd won, taking her time to deliberately do that, and I just saw that as her taking everything in. You know, looking mm. up on. On the on the stadium named after Arthur Ashe, taking in mainly the moment of winning a third Grand Slam title, a second U.S. Open, but also everything she'd achieved that summer, and it was it was a moment of of kind of relief, I think. Um, and you know, we've not we've not seen her since then. That is that's kind of my lasting image <laughs> of of Osaka as well, and that's that's powerful and. Perfect, I think, too. Mm. In terms of the men's event, obviously won by Dominic Team. His first slam came back from two sets to Love Down to beat Alexander Zverev uh, to win the title. That final set tiebreak is something that will live with me for a long time. Zverev attempting to serve out the match and serving a David Law-esque, uh, well, serving several David Law-esque first and second serves. That's something that will live with me for a long time. I mean, also Catherine Whitaker-esque, to be fair, but I'm not six foot, six say, foot seven. That description will live with him if somebody <laughs> tells him about it. Um, but of course, there is one moment from the men's competition that will that will spring instantly for mind, to mind for pretty much everyone. The Djokovic default um, facing Pablo Carreño Busta in the fourth round. This was... This was our reaction to it. Novak Djokovic is out of the US Open. That in itself would be a big news story. The fact that he is out of the US Open, having been defaulted in the first set against Pablo Carina Busta, having hit a line judge in the throat with a tennis ball, is just one of the biggest stories that I think I can ever remember at a Grand Slam. It was clearly accidental, but intent is irrelevant in terms of the decision to be made via the rule book, in terms of the need to default Novak Djokovic. And what followed thereafter, once the Lions judge had been accompanied away, there followed a, a lengthy discussion between Djokovic and the referee on court. Now, 
it was difficult to know what was going on. We couldn't hear it completely on the on the TV sound. You could hear occasional words. You could kind of get the gist of bits of it. But it seems as though the decision had been made pretty instantly. I know you told me, Catherine, afterwards that Tim Hemmer and Greg Rosetsky were, were categoric immediately. That is a default. As soon as I saw it and realized that Djokovic had been responsible for this line judge getting hit, I knew instantly that is a default and any other decision would have been an outrage. Um, but there was a lengthy discussion. The rules state that the action if it's deemed reckless or dangerous, regardless of the consequences, it's an immediate default. And Tim Hemman, who has as intimate experience as it's possible to have of this situation, um, called it straight away. And they said, this is not this, this is not a negotiation with Djokovic as much as it might appear to be one. This is them just softening the blow and giving him time to adjust and accept, and that's a, that's a luxury that he wouldn't have had with with a crowd. Um, but yeah, there there, were, there was no negotiation happening there. There was no wiggle room. There was no room for concession. Um, there was no yeah. There was no license for leeway in in those rules. It's very very clear. <laughs> and just ask Tim Hemman. He's been there. We then waited and i remember you saying in prime videos coverage we'll bring you the press comments when it's when it happens when it's live and shortly afterwards we heard that there would not be a press conference and pictures emerged of novak djokovic getting into a car and driving away yeah i mean the way to back up a rule violation is not with another rule violation which is what failing to attend a a mandatory press conference is. I know it's hard. I know it's the last thing you want to do, but it is required. It is the rules. It is part of the job. And I think everybody would have understood if he needed a whole heck of a lot of time before coming to that press conference um, to establish how he felt, to get over the shock. But it is part of the job. And that was, <laughs> that was a rule violation on top of a rule violation, which is, is not right. You know, and I said, just ask Tim Hemman. Well, I did on air about 400 times. Uh, I mean, obviously, it was sensational for our coverage that we had one of the very few people that had experienced what Djokovic had, you know, in, in the studio watching live. Uh, but equally, poor Tim having to relive the worst day of his life over and over and over again. Um yeah, I, I mean, we'll come on to talk about the French Open in a moment, but watching Djokovic at the O2, I just wonder, you know, I know we've all, we talked throughout the French Open about how impressed we were with how Djokovic has, has bounced back from, certainly in tennis terms, from from what happened there at the US Open. But I, I wonder, you know, he did seem, he seemed shackled to me at the O2 and he seemed shackled in the French Open final, there was no, you know, during during all matches at the O2 and during that that French Open final against Nadal, I was waiting for the beast to come out, you know, that defiant animal um, that brings out the best in Novak Djokovic's tennis. And it hasn't, it hasn't been there, um, or certainly not to the extent that it, that it usually is when he's at his best. And 
I don't I don't know if that experience at the US Open has just put put the brakes on his temperament a bit. Um and he maybe he needs them not those brakes not to be there to reach his reach his peak. I don't know. It's, it's a working theory. Mm, yeah, very difficult to know uh, whether it has any effect on him lingering afterwards in terms of how he carries himself on the court. I, I do feel that uh, that and that French Open final, I kind of put them together because they were both chastening in their own way. Both of them were effectively eliminators for Grand Slam titles. So obviously the uh, the French Open final was the championship match. But this felt like a championship match more or less. There was no Nadal in the field. There was no Roger Federer in the field. It was Dominic team, most likely, that was going to be the one he would have to get past if they if they both went all the way. But, you know, Djokovic hadn't lost a match all year. It's it's worth remembering that the guy had been on that in that incredible run and he'd just come straight back onto the tennis court. He'd won the Cincinnati tournament, played in New York. Of course, he's going to win his next Grand Slam and move to, what would it have been, 18? Um, just one behind Nadal. That's That's where he would have been. And then, who knows, you know? And that moment, that incredible moment of him hitting that ball into that line judge's throat freakish moment um could change the course of his entire career in terms of how he's remembered historically in in terms of grand slam titles that could be the moment that that, that separates him from the others mm. wow well i've got ahead of myself there by by mentioning that french open final obviously we had rome beginning the day after the us open which was just bonkers that was that was Halep's return to the tour obviously she um she hadn't played the US Open she'd played uh where had she played Prague she'd played and won Prague Prague on the clay prior to the US Open but had elected to stay in Europe so she won the Rome title Djokovic won the Rome title seemed like you know an extraordinary return from him Uh, Nadal had lost to Schwartzman which even though we'd said kind of nothing quite counts as a shock on tennis's return, somehow the sight of Nadal losing on clay uh, just just is a shock. Um, so Nadal, a slight unknown quantity going into to Roland Garros. Some some strange people weren't picking him for the title. Um, no need to dwell. No need to dwell on that. Um, but the talk, mostly certainly from us at the start of the French Open, uh, was about. How weird it was, because it was weird. Let's remember just how weird. Well, just when you think the year 2020 has hit peak weird, the first day of uh, Roland Garros happens (laughs) and uh, your entire definition of weird goes completely out of the window. Uh, This is the Tennis Podcast, our first Roland Garros daily that's not relived. Let's not ever relive this day uh, of 2020. And what an incredibly bizarre day. It is funny, isn't it? Watch, watching the action today did genuinely make you feel cold and a bit miserable. And I mean, I don't, I don't want to be grumpy about it. I mean, we've got a Grand Slam going on and it's great to have a Grand Slam going on, but it was jarring early on. I've got a feeling, David, that Matt loved it. He might be our source of, of enthusiasm here. Tell us about your day, Matt. 
I loved the start of the day. I thought it was hilarious when they all walked out wearing their tracksuits and it was raining and it was 40 mile an hour winds. Azarenka was in a puffer jacket. (laughs) I mean, they looked more like Arctic explorers than tennis players. It was absolutely wonderful, I thought, for about an hour. Um, yeah, I didn't focus on a single shot that was hit for about an hour. I was just sort of jumping from court to court to see what everyone was wearing. And there was <laughs> and, and there was one stage where the only two players who didn't have extra layers on were Dan Evans from Solihull and Emil Roussevori from Finland. And I thought yeah. that sort of summed it up. Everyone else was was layered and had tracksuits sensibly, I thought. But yeah, yeah we I saw mean, tennis played in a gilet today. That's was it a gilet? Well, I mean, I thought it looked like a photographer's vest. Um, mm, that's a good description. That we what Venus Williams Queens, was wearing, but I think it was more quilted than that to provide much needed, much needed insulation, warmth. Yes. Um, so f- for an hour or so, I couldn't really see the ball on many of the courts because the cameras just sort of had drops of rain on them. Yet <laughs> I kind of loved it. It was kind of the chaos that I was hoping for, but. I must say, as the day wore on, I was I was kind of hoping for some better tennis, and I think I think the wind and the conditions did make it very very difficult for them. So I know you're all tuning in to the day four French Open tennis podcast, wondering, well, how could it get any weirder today? And the answer that you're probably not expecting was a sonic boom. That is how the French Open got weirder. On day four, an actual sonic boom that brought Roland Garros and the rest of Paris to a very um, eerie, foreboding standstill. Um, and I'm making light of it now that we all know it was a sonic boom, but there was a it, it was a it was a fighter jet breaking the sound barrier, um, and it it made a, a a sound that was literally heard over the whole of Paris. But obviously there were some very, very eerie moments there when people were fearing the worst about what it might have been. But yeah, an actual sonic boom. I don't think that's anything we've ever covered in a tennis podcast before. Confirmed. So far, yeah. (laughs) We're one one and out so far with sonic booms. Um, (laughs) It was a funny old few days, wasn't it? I mean, it brightened up as the tournament went along, but goodness me, those first half dozen days... And and that sonic boom was within the same hour that Serena Williams withdrew from the tournament before yes. her second round match. I think it it, it was it, it was a, it was difficult to believe that all these things were happening so close <laughs> to each other on on that morning. And and of course, when the sun sort of did come out in the second week, which we'd all been desperately hoping for throughout the miserable first week it turned out to be a disaster because of the shadow created by the new Philippe Chatrier roof apparently that won't be such a problem when Roland Garros is staged at its normal intended time in early spring but with the sun lying where it was um, basically the tennis was unwatchable at certain (laughs) times of the day on Philippe Chatrier so lots of elements of weird um what wasn't weird was Nadal winning the title 13 Roland Garros titles ridiculous um what was weird at the time certainly doesn't seem it now that we're all well acquainted with her tennis but I think it's fair to say that Igish Viontek 
winning the women's title would perhaps have been considered weird a few months ago? For sure. I mean, she was not really a contender before the tournament. And then she was playing really nicely through the first few rounds, but she had Halep in the fourth round. And everyone, all of us were talking about how great Halep was looking. And that just felt like such a roadblock for her. And then she thrashed Halep. And then what made it even more impressive was that once she'd done that, wasn't she immediately made the favourite for the title? And yet yeah. she didn't She didn't waver. She, there was never any sense of panic or the occasion getting to her at all. And she just sort of continued her path of destruction through every single match. You know, I was looking up the the fewest games ever lost en route to a French Open final. And, you know, she was very much in the mix in terms of of that record. It was it was a staggeringly good performance and she seemed to mature that fortnight. I mean, I think we knew she was capable of creative, exciting tennis, but I don't think anyone was anticipating the way it would all come together for her and, and just seem, just feel so right that she would kind of be the French Open champion by the end of it mm. she's going to win more slams isn't she she's not going to be an ostapenko no i'd be very surprised if there's not a a lot in her future um just certainly game wise i mean I, I don't know about the technicalities whether there are things that can go wrong people sometimes talk about the the forehand being i think a late take back and delivery on on the shot but it just it doesn't seem to go wrong to me and it's devastating um and she's just such an instinctive player oh i can't wait to see tennis resume really with all the names that we've just described over the last half an hour mm. obviously we did have tennis after the french open we had uh, two events in cologne <laughs> with dogs. And we had a Strava. We had a Strava. Three exclamation marks in a Strava. Uh, we learned where Nur Sultan is. Where is um, it again? Astana. Astana is now called As- yes. Nur Sultan. Which Where's is Astana? Azerbaijan. Kazakhstan. Oh, balls. <laughs> <laughs> we failed to learn where Nur Sultan is. <laughs> we. Well, you had to ask. <laughs> I just wanted to hear you say Azerbaijan. Um, great. Well, I've definitely learned now. <laughs> Public humiliation is definitely the best way to learn. Uh, what did we have? We had St. Petersburg, Antwerp, Vienna. The Paris Masters went ahead. Um, Linz was the final event on the WTA Tour. And, of course, we had the ATP finals. No, no WTA finals, which is a... A desperate shame. And Daniil Medvedev ending the year with the metronomic winning of titles, um, which I'm sure there'll be more of in the future. Um, and, yeah, we we, still, we don't know anything about the future, do we? Because as we record this, we don't know when tennis will resume. No. No, I mean, as things stand, the latest reports are that it'll be a three-week delayed Australian Open that starts on the 8th of February with uh, a couple of weeks of quarantine in which players can practice. As You know, it's, it's, 
it sounds like they're really being put through it, Tennis Australia, right now by the government, and 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 understandably so. We've had quite a lot of correspondence from listeners in Australia that say, look, you know, we love tennis. We love tennis. We would love the Australian Open to happen and to be a massive success. But we also know what it has taken to get this country and this state of Victoria to zero cases of coronavirus every day for about three weeks. And we are now, having come through that awful few months, living relatively normally. And we do not want anything to get in the way of that. And, and I, I mean, I really can understand that. And... Um, um, yeah, they've they've got to strike the balance, and it's a huge diplomatic effort for Tennis Australia to convince the authorities that they are going to do it safely without compromising this huge public health effort. Yeah, in the twenty four hours up to December first, twenty twenty, the state of Victoria had. 6,874 coronavirus tests performed, of which there were no positive cases, no lives lost, no active cases, and zero cases with unknown source. And they've sacrificed tremendously to achieve those pretty extraordinary numbers. And it is entirely understandable that uh, nobody wants to put that into jeopardy. For the sake of anything really um so yeah as as challenging as it is that the australian summer is shrouded in uncertainty it's entirely entirely understandable hey john melman will be out of quarantine by now won't he yeah he'll be he's having the he's having what was that breakfast that he wants to have with his oh, halloumi on, avocado, avocado on yeah a, cl- a classic um brizzy breakfast halloumi on the side my parents mm. miss those Flat they used white. to live in brisbane and brisbane does good i mean australia in general but brisbane really does do a good a good breakfast yeah. hope you're enjoying it john river <laughs> riverbend cafe in belimba that's where i'd be if i were him anyway yeah enjoy john <laughs> Um yeah that's that's it for reliving this year let's let's put 2020 to bed <laughs> yeah let's just leave it there no more reliving even <laughs> i draw the line at reliving that thing again no more reliving let's look ahead to 2021 um when we will be doing more podcasts well, we certainly will if we get the five more required percent of uh, our funding target um yeah a reminder that if you'd if you'd like to contribute um, please do, please do. We will um, use every penny to make this podcast as good as it can possibly be for 2021. So thank you, everybody that's contributed so far. We're very excited about all the awards categories and all the pets that I'm going to get to know over the next few months. Uh, and we can't wait to do more of these podcasts. Uh, we're doing one on Monday, aren't we? What are we doing on Monday, Matt? Unfortunately, it's more looking back on 2020. We're, do- <laughs> we're doing our awards for the year. We've got our live show this this weekend on Zoom with some of our Kickstarter backers, our predictions level backers from last year. And we're going to be reflecting on that and revealing what the awards and nominations were. So... Yes, unfortunately, one more look back on 2020 and then we can <laughs> properly draw a line under it. I went too soon on putting things to bed. 
uh, as I so often do. Uh, so join us on Monday for our next tennis podcast. Check out our Kickstarter if you'd like. Check out the Instagram Q&A that I did yesterday. Oh, that's my alarm going off. Oh. That's my alarm going off to check the Kickstarter at the 48-hour mark. (laughs) My alarm is a Taylor Swift song. Okay, I think I've humiliated myself enough for today. We'll see you on Monday. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.